Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. Absolutely live. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world, although hopefully not too unpopular in this room. We're recording on the... It'd be really bad if it was. It'd be really bad. We are here recording on the second day of Progress Political Weekend 2018 at Stoke Rochford Hall. Uh, as listeners at home will be able to hear, our raucous audience is in fine voice this Sunday morning uh, after an abstemious approach to St. Patrick's evening, I'm sure. <laughs> Can we just quickly have a raise of hands? How many of you here have listened to the podcast before? Let the record show for those at home that every single person in this room <laughs> put their hand up. I can see a few people, actually, who haven't put their hands up. And Richard Angel will find you afterwards. <laughs> But I'm pleased that uh, everyone is in such high spirits. We will be having some audience participation later. I'm glad that you both have drinking and politics in moderation last night. I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope. As always, I'll be guiding proceedings, but we'll be taking a slightly different approach to today's special show. Uh, Progress Chair Alison McGovern and Ilford North MP Wes Streeting will be tackling one of the biggest topics in today's politics and will be encouraging the audience to join in the debate. So I think one important facet of being a progressive is that we don't have a single historical founding text through which we should analyse all contemporary issues. There's no single thinker whose ideas we have to attempt to apply in a modern setting. So when faced with enormous challenges in society, we have no simple belief that there are either problems or opportunities. And so today we'll be talking about automation and what is called the fourth industrial revolution. Where Streeting believes that we should be wary about large-scale automation and that the jobs it makes obsolete will not be easily replaced. Alison McGovern believes that we should embrace technological advance and that we should look to its progressive potential rather than fear its possibility for rapacious capitalist excess. So committed are they to these points of view that they've already argued the issue in long essay form via email, I understand. Can I just ask, how on earth did that come about? Uh, Wes was wrong. I thought he needed to be corrected. <laughs> At length. No argument that can't be fixed with a 3,000 word essay. Did you, did you like, agree that you would go away and do this? Or? No, basically, Alison wrote a Medium blog, sent it to me on Twitter saying why we're streeting is wrong. And, and I, I, actually, it was, it was quite long and unexpected and I couldn't be asked replying. So I thought, I thought this would be a really great way to come and, and take on the debate. I mean, I've been saying to him for months, where's my 3,000 words, Wes? And it's like, literally like school over again. Where is it? Where's, where's the deadline? Where's the essay? And we're in Treasury Select Committee together, so that is like twice a week. It's a lot of time with you, that's true. <laughs> Before we hear from them properly, uh, I want to test how you guys feel about the subject. So on your chairs, you'll find uh, two cards, one green, one yellow. This will make for great podcast material as you all <laughs> silently raise your cards. <laughs> if you're leaning towards the streeting position, could you raise a yellow card? And if you're leaning towards the McGovern position... <laughs> and if you genuinely have no idea, just raise your hand. <laughs> well done, Adam. Get off the fence. <laughs> Uh, and when we come to questions later, if you could uh, raise the card that relates to your views so I can get a good kind of cross-section of views, although it feels quite one-sided towards Alison McGovern's position. 
We're going to start, I'm going to give the floor over to Wes. Wes, you've got five minutes to convince us why we should be wary of automation. Well, firstly, I'm an optimist about technology as well and think it's something that we should embrace and has huge potential to um, change pretty much every facet of life in our country and around the world. And too often this debate is characterised as, you know, on one hand, technology and automation and artificial intelligence can only be a good thing. It has the potential to liberate people from drudgery and toil of um, some of the kind of manual jobs. And the, in the future, technology will sweep all of that away and we will have... Um, as some people call it, fully automated luxury communism, where we literally don't do anything uh, except kind of sit around and debate Gramsci. I mean, think of Navarra Media, but for everyone, it would be... Um, it would, what a future, eh? Um, and then on the, other, on the other hand, you kind of get people saying oh my God, the robots are coming and it's going to be absolutely awful and I've seen the Matrix and iRobot and it doesn't end well. And the truth is that um, this will come, you know, the, the truth of the future is that this will end up somewhere in the middle and actually there are a whole series of challenges and issues confronting us that if we don't address, particularly those of us on the centre-left, we're in danger of making some really fundamental uh, mistakes. Um, we're at the brink of an industrial revolution that's changing the world on a pace and scale that we have previously uh, never seen. And that's partly about the pace of um, technological change and the impact that's having on um, our economy, on our society, on our ways of living. It's also partly because it's coming at a time um, where other big forces are shaping the world in addition to technology like globalisation and demography. And that really does present a whole range of policy challenges uh, for the future. Um, automation and technological unemployment isn't new. In fact, in 1589, a guy called William Lee invented the stocking frame knitting machine and went to Queen Elizabeth I and asked for a patent. And she turned it down on the, on the basis that um, it would um, make people unemployed, thus making them beggars. And so poor William Lee was left disappointed. Keynes talked about technological unemployment as well. The phenomenon isn't new. But I think what's different about this industrial revolution um, is that it, it, with artificial intelligence in particular, in particular, we're going to have technology doing jobs that were previously thought to be, or functions that were previously thought to be quintessentially human. And, and that doesn't just provide a practical challenge in terms of jobs that may be taken, not just blue collar jobs, but white collar jobs. Um, it also raises some really kind of fundamental ethical questions. And there are a whole series of things that we need to be thinking about at the moment in terms of policy challenges, because you think about, and I think this is just like globalisation, right? So, and this is this is my kind of plea to you um, as a group of people on the centre left. So, we wholeheartedly embraced globalisation as a positive force for good in the world, and I think overall that was the right position to adopt. Not least because you look at the millions of people that have been lit, lit, lifted out of real abject poverty across the world through globalisation. It's something that we should defend and champion and hopefully in the future continue to advance in, in spite of the challenges. But globalisation also had big um, challenges, not least um, exacerbating inequality within and between nations. And I think that's the fundamental challenge of the fourth industrial revolution. It requires us in the context of an ageing population to think really carefully about issues like lifelong learning. How do we make sure that not just school leavers are equipped with the skills for the future, but how do people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, possibly even 70s keep their skills uh, up to date in that context. Um, do we need, as IPPR have argued for, um, the equivalent of the Human Fertilisation Embryology Authority, but for artificial intelligence and technology to think through some of the ethical consequences? Um, I think that in addition to er taking jobs, new jobs will be created, but what will those jobs look like? Um, how do we avoid a race to the bottom? Um, are there ways in which quality of life can be improved? Not just um, quality of life at work, but quality of life um, at home through technology. I think these are really big fundamental questions to ask and my fear is that whether on the centre-left or the centre-right, people just kind of go, oh, technology, great, isn't it fantastic? It's changing the world, it's brilliant. Um, but I think people um, may wake up too late to the dislocation, the disruption, um, the inequality that this technology has the potential to create. And I think indifference to the excesses of globalisation is, is one of the reasons why we are where we are now in terms of the growth of populism and the sense of people feeling left behind. And I'm afraid the centre-left and third-way politics has to own some of that 
uh, and has to take responsibility for some of the problems that our politics created and not just taking responsibility for the excesses of globalization and seeking to address it, but now thinking about this new industrial revolution and how we make sure that this is genuinely a positive thing for humanity. Um, so I'm not a pessimist by nature. I'm not a pessimist about technology and artificial intelligence, but I really think on the center left, we have a responsibility to think through not just the opportunities, but the challenges. And that's my appeal to you this morning. I think you do get the sense that people go on about the robots are coming, the robots are coming so often. I saw a video recently, I'm sure lots of you saw it as well, um, and it was two robots that looked a bit like dogs, and then they opened a door, just a normal door, and people were tweeting it going, the robots are coming, the ro they're going to take over the world. It's like, I can open a door way quicker than that, I'm not worried about that. Uh, Alison, can we uh, come to you now? Tell us why no one will lose their job and we can all enjoy fully automated luxury social democracy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this row essentially started because I think Wes thinks two things that are incorrect. So those two things are that this technological change that we're witnessing is, quote, change at a pace we have never seen before. And secondly, that somehow the technological change that we're seeing right now is different, it's a different, not just in degree in terms of the speed, but a difference of kind, because somehow the new technological innovations will replace skills that are quintessentially human. And I think that's wrong too. And that's because I think that this debate, this discussion is missing two fundamental facts, which is that the process of technological change that we're seeing now is basically the same process of technological change that we've seen before. And secondly, that this argument is a, an argument about our economy, but it's not really about that. It's actually an emotional argument that plays into people's fear of the future. That's very natural. And you know, the older I get, the more I understand it. But actually, it's the role of progressives in politics to embrace the future. So look, I just want to say why I think Wes is wrong. So on the, on the speed of the technology, we, people always get very excited and interested by technological change that is happening now or that they think might happen quite soon. It's the kind of tomorrow's world attitude to technology. But I want you to put yourself in the place of a late Victorian where up to this point, it takes two to three weeks to get a message to New York. And then someone invents the telegraph. Now, the telegraph might not sound as exciting to you as artificial intelligence, but it took the amount of time it took to get a message from London to New York from approximately two to three weeks to two to three minutes. That's a change of some thousands, a factor of thousands of times. Whereas when we went from uh, fax machines to uh, email using the internet, it was a change from say, how long did a fax take? A couple of minutes to a couple of seconds, which is an impressive change, but it's not as fast as the speed up from sending a message by boat to having the telegraph. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to have lived in a world where there was no other way to communicate with people than sending a piece of paper on the back of a horse with a rider through to sending a message down a wire. You know, I think that will make our ideas about science fiction seem fairly calm and slow in pace in comparison to that. And secondly, the, the other example that I just want you to think about is to put yourself in the place, in the shoes of a domestic servant in the 1920s and imagine washing the clothes for a household of people. And then a few years later, you hear that someone has invented a machine that can do all of that work. It's called a washing machine. Now, the washing machine didn't just speed up the amount of time it took. I mean, women used to spend most of their waking hours washing clothes, right? Because it was laborious. You had to 
You had to douse the clothes in water. You had to physically manipulate the dirt from them. You had to turn the mangle to squeeze the water out, and then you had to beat them. It literally used to take days and days of women's lives. Someone invents a machine that can do all of that for you. And the workforce in our country doubled. Over, over a pretty short amount of years, women joining the workforce had the most profound effect on the British labour market. And do we think that somehow what we're experiencing now, yes, with, uh, I mean, you know, I see it all the time in car factories and in, uh, in Airbus, close to me, the fact that robots can now do things uh, that, you know, it used to take a team of workers to do, a robot can now do for us. Yes, those are big changes, they're important changes. But just put yourself in the place of a woman who never knew about a washing machine. And imagine not just the change that that would have on your life individually, but what that meant for the labour market. All of a sudden, women were not just accoutrements of the household that made men's lives function. All of a sudden, they were totally liberated to go and get a job themselves. And all of that happened in my nan's lifetime. You know, she lives through all of that. And I can't imagine that that technological change that she experienced felt more dramatic or more earth-shatteringly important than the technological change that happened now. And the reason why we think it is is because this is not really an economic argument. It's really an emotional argument about how we feel about the future. Now, the second argument that Wares makes is that somehow these robots, these um, the 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 um, algorithms and the, the applications, the APIs that are being produced now are taking over roles that are, have been heretofore quintessentially human. Well, I think that's just a misreading of our history. And the inventor of the computing machine, Alan Turing, knew exactly what he was doing. In 1946, just after the Second World War, when Alan Turing emerged from Bletchley Park, and attempted to take what he'd learned during the war and create a computing machine that could be functionally useful for the British public. There was a kind of tech moral panic, like the one that we're having now. And there, um, the, the Daily Telegraph described this as um, that the, the implications of the machines that were being created, that people then called um, artificial brains, were so vast that we cannot, could not conceive how it would affect our civilization and that it would make human activity a thousand times faster. And they finally, they were desperate to interview Turing. And he was kind of like a boffin that was holed up and uh, wasn't allowed to talk to journalists. But a, a cheeky journalist finally got him on the phone. And Professor Turing was asked whether it would be like having an artificial brain. And there was a joke at the time that... that whatever the scientists could create, that they would not be able to create an artificial brain that could write a sonnet. No, no computer could ever compete with Shakespeare, they said. But Turing said, I do not see why it should not enter any one of the fields normally covered by the human intellect. And he laughed and said, I don't even think you can draw the line at sonnets. Though the comparison is probably a bit unfair because a sonnet written by a machine will probably be better appreciated by another machine. <laughs> so all of this conversation that we had about the replacing of the human intellect by machines happened in the 40s too. And the lesson that I take from this being the same old process, and I'll finish now, Connor, sorry, I've gone on and on. But the lesson I take is because it's the same old challenge, because the process of technological change is with us all the time, and because really this fearfulness uh, about technology is really a fearfulness, a conservative fearfulness about the future, the labour movement has two jobs to do to make sure that whatever happens to our economy, our values are still upheld. And the first of those challenges is the importance of public education. We will always drift towards inequality unless we have good education. And we have 5 million adults in Britain today without basic skills and 12 million without digital skills. So at risk of sounding like I agree with Wes, which I very much don't. <laughs> <laughs>
It is the job of the labor movement, as it has always been, as it was in the 1940s, when all of this technological change was happening, to establish every person's right in Britain to the best possible education. And the second thing we have to fight for is about in whose interests our economy develops. It will always be the case that rich, wealthy people who want to invest in new technology will do so in a way that helps them accrue more wealth. But it's the job of people in this room and the job of our movement to make sure that the wealth that is created through new technology is held as widely as possible and that we have a political influence on our economy that means that our values are at the heart of the change. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wes, I think kind of... Part of Alison's point there may have been that, you know, trying to uh, oppose automation is kind of a ridiculous idea. You, you risk kind of being like King Canute trying to hold back the tide. And isn't it better to just kind of go along with the inevitable? Although, come to think of it, that sounds a lot like the Labour Party's position on Brexit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. We haven't got time. Um, but um, no, and that's why I don't, I'm not at all opposed to automation or technology. In fact, one of the challenges our country has is that we are not investing enough in technology. You know, we, when I joined the Treasury Committee, everyone was banging on about this productivity puzzle. But it's really not a puzzle at all. You just look at business investment in this country and investment into R&D, and it's kind of pretty obvious that um, business, um, even um, the state through our universities or through state investment in business R&D, we're not spending nearly enough on this. And there are massive productivity gains to be made. And I would very much support that. Um, where I disagree with Alison fundamentally is, for, for me, this isn't um, an emotional argument. It is fundamentally a, an economic argument. Um, I, I think when you look at what's happened to the economy, we've seen um, more and more um, of, of, of the wealth of this country and around the world concentrated in the hands of fewer people. And I think that the, the um, technological revolution that we're going through risks exacerbating that even further. So I think that's where the debate about um, distribution of market income and fair distribution of market income comes in. Um, the debate about safety nets. Um, I'm not a instinctively um, a fan of universal basic income, but I do think that the UBI debate has let people into what will be a really important conversation over decades, and this is over decades, um, about how we make sure that everyone has a decent income, um, has access to work. I mean, also, the other thing to say is that in this country, you know, across the world, we've got a problem of regional disparities. And when you look at some of the projections of parts of our country that are most at risk from technological unemployment, um, unfortunately, it's those same places that have been scarred by every recession and will be worse impacted yeah. on by Brexit. So uh, this is not about being anti-technology, but it is about making sure we've got the right public policy responses to protect, to provide social protections 
against uh, the, the the worst excesses of the, of the um, industrial revolution we're going through, but also to make sure that we're we're, we're fundamentally getting the basics right of um, power, wealth, and opportunity in the hands of the many, not the few. And and I agreed with everything. <laughs> Alison, I agreed with everything Alison said about those two challenges at the end of her uh, at the end of her um, speech. Um, but I would add one more thing, which is. Um, the, the Labour Party was founded overwhelmingly for one reason, and the clue's in the name. We are the party of Labour. And in the age-old debate about the um, interests of capital versus Labour, there is a gross imbalance in this country and around the world. And I think that in the context of technology and technological change, our founding mission to protect the interests of Labour and people at work becomes more relevant um, as we um, in, enter into um, the 21st century than it was even when our party was founded. And that's why I think it's so important that we're having this debate and that we're getting our policy um, direction on this right. Because I risk other, I, I really do fear, my only fear about technology isn't technology itself, but it's the indifference to the excesses of the technological revolution that remind me of the debates we were having about globalization. And we are you know, enjoying the benefits of, of disruptive technology, but we are seeing the consequences of failure to address its excesses through the disruptive impact on our politics. It I mean, it... Can, I, can I just, I, I really kind of want to interrupt because the inequality in, from the point of view of wealth in our country is driven by one factor almost entirely, which is the housing market. And there ain't nothing technological about bricks and mortar. That it's just a fact that wealth inequality in Britain has been driven by the fact that if you own a house within striking distance of London, you got rich over the past couple of decades. And if you own a house elsewhere in the country, you know, it really hasn't increased in value that much. I mean, that's absolutely nothing to do with technology. The and the the other um, factor you mentioned is like, isn't this just like globalization? And the champions of globalization got this wrong before, and let's not make the same mistake again. I mean, like honestly, technology technology is like politics neutral. We create can create technology to do whatever we like, and when it comes to whether it's the accessibility of transport. Um, where, uh, you know, technological change means that getting about is far more accessible for people with disabilities than it has before. Or what, I mean, just the, the impact of, um, of, of, on women's safety, of being able to be in direct contact with the taxi driver that's about to pick you up, like whatever you think of the way that Uber has quite ruthlessly used its market position to, uh, you know, exploit uh, drivers... That is a massive gain in terms of gender equality and the, and the safety that women feel. So I, my objection is the idea that somehow technology is a force that we don't control. We can, we can get technology to do whatever we want. The, the power is in our hands. And, you know, that debate about labor and capital, well, I, I sort of just question your analysis that, like, we're in a worse position now than we were in 1900. Um, in 1900, people, working people, couldn't even vote, basically. So, like, so, like, the the idea that we, as like ordinary working people, have less power and control over our lives than when the Labour Party was founded, like, I think is wrong. And it just it plays into, and this is my real problem. It plays into the kind of nostalgia fond bring backery nonsense that we hear all the time in politics. Oh, it was so much better before, you know, so much better before we had constant like email and so, or social media and all that. Yeah, sure, there are problems with it. But actually, if we choose, we can make technology really change our world. And I don't see there's any reason why we can't use technology to end inequality. Can I just pick up this point about transport? Because I think it is a really good example. Oh, taxis. Come on, Wes. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you, you pressed my button with Uber. We'll, we'll, um, we'll be here for an hour now. Uh, now and by, oh, and by the way, I, I don't, I'm not saying that things are worse for working people um, than they were in the in late 19th century. Of course, that's not true. But I think the, um, the challenge that we're facing is as great, if not greater, thinking about the future of work now than it was over, over 100 years ago. But on, on trans, transport is a really, really good example. There are lots of ways in which people's experience of transport has improved and will continue to improve as a result of technology. But there are some challenges and consequences. One of the challenges, just in my city alone, in London, there are over 100,000 people who drive taxis or private hire vehicles and driverless cars are coming. 
And so there is an instant impact just on that one technological change on over 100,000 jobs. Now, I am not in the corner saying, no, don't have driverless cars. Although, you know, I'll be gutted because I'm finally about to pass my driving test. Um, But, you know, um, I'm not saying, no, don't do it. But I'm saying there is a consequence. There's an impact. And what are we going to do to make sure those people can find um, other decent jobs? Uber is also a really good example. I'll be careful what I say here because I'm not protected by parliamentary privilege in this room. Um, But um, uh, my problem with Uber as someone who used to use it and stopped using it, is the ease, convenient, cost, great. People say, oh, but it's so much cheaper getting an Uber and I can just press my button. The problem with Uber's business model is that those fares are made artificially low through a combination of poverty pay and exploitative terms and conditions for drivers, um, aggressive tax avoidance, and um, their business model, which makes a loss around the world, London's one of the few exceptions, made po- the, the loss-making model is made possible through venture capital to keep the business going long enough to drive the competition off the road. And we're seeing Literally. that in cities around the world. Yeah. We're seeing that in, in my city. And uh, uh, the Labour Party should not be indifferent to those challenges. For, um, we should not be indifferent to the exploitation of workers. We shouldn't be indifferent to aggressive tax avoidance. Uh, and we shouldn't be indifferent to uh, eff- effectively predatory capitalism trying to drive out competition. We should be champions of competition. And we should take on anti-competitive business models. So I don't mind people getting, as I say, I'm not anti-Uber customers. I'm not anti-Uber drivers. But I think there's something um, rotten at the heart of um, that company's business model. And that's before we get into the women being sexually assaulted and raped in the backs of cars and the company not reporting it effectively to the Metropolitan Police or um, losing um, all of its customers and drivers' data and then paying criminal hackers and and not bothering to tell the authorities in any of the jurisdictions where it operates. Um, So I I think kind of the transport debate is a really good example of how um, actually quite modest technological change is already having a disruptive impact on um, on industry and it's striking when you look at the regional data if, if I the one person who should be more worried about this in terms of their constituents than anyone else is John McDonnell because his constituency of Hayes and Harlington is most at risk because you think about its transport its logistics it's and I'm not saying that technology you know in in developments in in, the, in that industry is bad at all but it does have consequences. There are challenges. And my fear is that by simply being champions of technology and artificial intelligence and saying, it's just great, it's brilliant, it's going to change the world, we are being too slow as policymakers to a process that's actually happening very rapidly. Can I ask quickly on driverless cars? Because we had this debate in the office the other day um, about the, you know, the age-old trolley problem uh, of essentially... In a driverless car, if someone runs out in front of the road... Oh, the philosophical trolley problem. Yeah. Yeah. So not like I get to Sainsbury's and I don't have a pound. Right, that's what I thought you meant for a second. Is everybody... (laughs) If the trolley problem in political philosophy, like... So, yeah, so if 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 someone runs in front of the car, the driverless car then has to make a decision, essentially. Do you carry on going? Do you slam the brakes on but hit this person and they probably die? Or do you swerve and hit another car? And essentially... That, that decision is now made by drivers in the heat of the moment. But with driverless cars, essentially someone yeah. has to make that I, I say we debated this in the off, office the other day. Uh, someone brought it up. And then we went, that's a really interesting debate. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on driverless cars, and, you know, Wes has pointed to a very important economic problem. That is not a problem with the technology. That is a problem with the political framework that regulates the use of that technology. And the it, on driverless cars, again, people are sort of like catastrophizing, like, oh my goodness, overnight, we're going to have no taxi drivers and we're going to have driverless cars and the world's going to change overnight. But actually, we've had more and more technology in our vehicles uh, for some years now, um, uh, anybody got a car that can park itself? Yep, yep. Um, it's quite common now. Um, that's a really good thing. It means that you know people aren't people are less likely to make errors and that sort of thing. And what will essentially happen is not um, it's not that overnight suddenly the streets of London will be you know. Uh, devoid of black cab drivers and uh you know all of their marvelous knowledge but rather we'll progress 
through technological development. And right now, as we're sat here, we don't have the legal framework for that problem. So if you're in charge of a vehicle and you cause, you know, death or uh, harm to a person, then you're legally responsible. Right now, as we're sat here, we, we don't have the legal framework for a machine to be responsible. That's something that Parliament might have to legislate for at some point, just in, just in the same way as, you know, we've had to legislate for um, industrial accidents and that sort of thing uh, over, over the period of our history. It's not something I think we should be terrified by. And again, it comes back to my central point, which is that when you stop thinking about this as a problem of technology and start to see that it's the resurgence of nostalgia in politics again, then it enables you to think, okay, what are we trying to achieve? And lots of people have got very wealthy from developments in new technology um, around the world, but actually a relatively small number so far in our country. And I think the challenge for us is when it comes to wealth and inequality is not, is technology a great risk to us all? And will it create more inequality than we've already got? But rather, how do we, how can we use new technology to help more people make a living? How can we get the benefits and the wealth that accrues through de the development of new technology to more people? So instead of one person making a billion pounds, how can we help thousands of people make tens of thousands of pounds out of new technology? And I think that's eminent. It's part of the risk here, no, not just though that uh, we're kind of being blasé about the, the possibility of job losses. Like we see that technology can, can do that and actually... That is exactly the problem that a lot of people have with our politics. It was like, we kind of go, oh, the, the big economic picture will be better. And people don't see that at a kind of local level. Um, possibly. I mean, I think one of the problems of politics generally is that we tend to think in graphs. So we tend to think, and this is the, uh, the argument that Caroline Flint always kind of has with me about immigration, that she says, oh, you know, people just talked about the net benefits of immigration. And if you, you know, if you just say to people, well, nationally, it will be better for us um, if we have an open policy on immigration, that has nothing to say to the individual person who feels like they lost out on a job opportunity because somebody came from France to take that job. And I think that's a fair criticism in the sense that we always have to think of our politics from the, the eye view of the person um, that we're trying to persuade to vote for us. We always have to think about what we're doing for an individual and their own hopes and ambitions and dreams. But again, that's why I think it's a massive mistake to be nostalgic about, you know, years gone by before Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I think you have to get that most people are, are trying to plan a life for themselves and their family. And for them, the idea of new technology is probably quite liberating. And it's just, a, it's just a mistake to think that somehow um, the only thing that new technology brings is trouble, which I know is not Wes's position, <laughs> but the discussion with new technology always very quickly falls into, you know, the realms of science fiction horror. Shall we get some questions from the audience? I think we've got about 10 minutes to, to go through some. But, um, so we'll do three at a time. If you could raise the colour card so that I can try and get a cross-section... I will take Mary, uh, Jesse, and a third one over there. Great. If you could come up to the front, we've got the um, microphone here. Uh, Mary Wimbury, um, I'm going to take a pragmatic centrist position in between Alison and Wes, I think. Um, but I think there's a lot of truth in what you're both saying, which is with slightly different emphasis. What we're talking about is new technology is happening. How do we regulate it and how do we make it work best for the people that we represent? And Wes talked about, you know, this party being founded in the interests of labour against capital. Well, actually, you know, we're talking about new means of production, aren't we? We're talking about the people that can make the algorithms rule the world effectively. And Alison mentioned in what she said initially, education. And I think too much of our education is focused on actually teaching people to use technology, teaching yeah. people to use Microsoft products, etc., and be worker ants in that process. And actually, it's not difficult to teach people to understand the underlying structures, logical structures 
of those algorithms, and that's what we need to be doing. But the other thing I wanted to ask about is we've talked a lot and we're seeing a lot of innovation from the private sector, understandably, but it seems to me there are massive opportunities for public services here as well in terms of embracing new technology. And we know, for example, there are um, algorithms that can identify certain types of cancer way better than the human eye. Well, of course we're not against that, and of course we can't be against that, but it is about how we control that technology, who gets to interpret it. Imagine what a Harold Shipman of the future could yeah. do with that technology. So we do need to think about these questions. Equally, we're talking about commissioning outcomes-based care. Well, we have lots of conversations about how people can manage personal budgets, etc. And yet, you know, a lot of us sit here on our mobile phones, update our packages very easily. How do we ensure that we get the buy-in we need to the services that we believe the public sector should be providing by ensuring they remain as up-to-date as Uber, but also have better terms and conditions for the people working in them? Here, here. Jesse Coleman, Greenwich and Woolwich. Uh, so I agree more with Wes. And basically, I think it's because artificial intelligence is a difference of kind rather than degree. The thing with a washing machine is that a washing machine will do the same job more efficiently, whereas artificial intelligence can start creating new moves. So one of the things when you've got artificial intelligence against uh, the world chess champion or world go champion is that they're creating new moves and they're doing things which adds an unpredictable element which is why I think compared to previous technological revolutions, this adds an unpredictable element where we don't know how it will change things. So with that said, how do we balance the ethics of AI with making sure that we win the artificial intelligence race against China, say, or even Russia? Thank you. Sorry, um, I'm Kieran. I'm from Hope and Portslade. So I think the biggest problem I sort of see with automation is that it's very, very easy to ma manipulate to, like, in order to make a bigger profit. And an example I think you can say is Amazon. Like they, so in their factories, it's mainly um, robotic to like essentially save on the cost of their products. So I was, I was wondering, like, so with Wes's great work on Uber, how do you solve something like Amazon where they're not actually breaking any laws or? Mm. Like how do you actually do a moral position on that? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for that. So, Wes, can we, can we start with you on those questions? Um, well, just to take the last one, profit is not a bad thing. We also want it to be fairly um, distributed as well. And I think that that is one of the challenges that comes up um, if indeed, and this, is, and this is an if, if indeed there is a net loss in terms of, in terms of um, jobs of the future. I mean, one of the reasons to be potentially optimistic about um, technology and jobs, um, I was talking to Darren Jones, who's a new MP, a member of the Science and Technology Committee, and they've, uh, they visited um, a hospital where um, a robot had effectively replaced a significant part of a hospital porter's job, i.e. moving people and kind of beds around the building. Um, and the really positive thing um, about that was that, um, firstly, unlike some of, you know, the electronic dog that can't open the door as well as we can, <laughs> you know, actually that it could do the job well so you kind of it wasn't an unpleasant experience for the patient but interestingly the impact wasn't the loss of hospital porter jobs it was redeployment of time of hospital porters to have more human interaction and contact time with patients asking them questions about their comfort and do they have what they need and they you know if they need medical assistance from a nurse or a doctor then the porter could be of assistance in signposting um, and and kind of bringing someone through so I think you know that's why I'm not entirely pessimistic but there, but there are some challenges. And um, I mean, Jesse picked up on a big one around artificial intelligence um, because there are really big ethical concerns. And that's why I think IPPR's um, idea for sort of the Human Fertilization em Embryology Authority, but for technology, I think is a really interesting one. Um, uh, one of the areas we haven't touched on yet is defense, for example. I mean, I think there are already ethical issues around the use of drones and the extent to which... Um, I mean, you know, I don't want to kind of misread history as a, as a history graduate, because it's not always true to say that generals or presidents or prime ministers have always thought about the best interests of their people before they send them into battle. But in a context where um, attacking an opponent and taking lots of innocent life is almost 
pretty risk and consequence free um, if you're sat, um, you know, in a dictatorial regime that doesn't care about these sorts of things. Uh, and also, by the way, sometimes in democratic regimes too, um, you know, there are challenges there in terms of the ethics of warfare and what happens if, you know, there could be huge loss of human life with very little risk to the aggressor. And um, so I think that th these are sorts of ethical issues that cut right through um, society and go a lot beyond what would, you know, what would happen, for example, um, if, uh, you know, a driverless car were driving and had to choose between knocking down um, a, a little old lady with um, you know certainty of death and she's only got probably a few years left or knocking down a child who's maybe got less of a risk of you know survival would live longer and all that stuff. you know there are all sorts of you know uh, ethical questions that I think come out from from AI and that's why I think Jesse your question was really important and finally um, Mary education and public <laughs> services um, I think the public sector is pretty terrible when it comes to innovation and there are existing and very simple technologies that are not effectively deployed in the public sector. Um, and that should be a big focus of our, um, I was about to say, of Labour's public sector reform agenda. Um, let's get a public sector reform agenda first, and then let's make sure that technology is part of it. Um, and, and finally, on education. Um, with, I just think the education system, it, it just isn't fundamentally working. And I think a huge part of that is the... Um, central, centralized prescription of what teachers do, um, an over-obsession with knowledge rather than thinking and creativity. We should be teaching young people and older people, not just to use technology, but to create technology as well. And I think that is a huge gap at the heart of our education system and, and one of the many reasons why um, I loathe our current government's obsession with um, ineffective and regressive education structures and um, loathe even more the extent to which Brexit is totally consuming every inch of political bandwidth. So we're not even having a conversation about education at all in our country at the moment, in spite of Angela Rayner's best efforts. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think this is one of the biggest questions facing our society. As Alison said, you know, education is, is absolutely key to the future. So Alison, you gave me an inscrutable look while Wes was uh, talking then. Um, <laughs> what was it particularly that uh, you disagree with so much? Well, okay, look, so Jesse's question is is an interesting one. It's, it's specifically the argument that I was trying to disagree with. Turing set about to create a machine that could think, and his definition of that was that it could learn. And so the idea that somehow... Um, I mean, of course, a washing machine doesn't think and learn. My, my washing machine example was more to do with the fact that we've been through transformations of the labor market before when it comes to, to technology, and they are not always negative, even though that's the, the story that's currently told at the moment. The basic function of a computer is that it can take basic information, apply principles, and... Uh, and create outputs that can interact with human beings in the way that we interact with each other. That's just what a computer is. And I think that it's, it's a, just a mistake to think that um, artificial intelligence using complex algorithms and many thousands and millions and billions and billions of pieces of data is, any, is different from what we've had before. It's just development of the same principles. And therefore, my argument is same principles apply. Because this is not a new change, it's just a continuation of the change that we've been having, same arguments apply. Who controls the labour market? Who's politically in charge of where the wealth goes? And how do people get education so that they can use technology, design their own technology? Um, the, which brings me to Mary's point. And, and well, you know, Wes has made some, some very good uh, remarks in, in response to it, so I won't go on. But the single biggest problem that we have at the moment in the context of those 5 million adults who don't have uh, basic skills uh, is, is maths, I think. I think we broadly in this country, I'm going to like... Teachers in the room can disagree with me, but I think we broadly know how to teach literacy English. I think that we are only just working out how to teach maths. And when I learned maths at school, like what we did was the teacher wrote the calculation on the board. Like if we were doing like long division or like geometry or whatever, the teacher wrote the calculation on the board. And then we had a textbook 
that had like 30 versions of that question and we had to work through them and we had to like practice, practice, practice doing that computation. We were, did you call us worker bees? Yeah. Worker ants, exactly. And you're right. What we do with kids and computers is we say, here's how to use Word. Here's how to make a spreadsheet function. And those skills become obsolete so very quickly. Now, question. What is maths? Maths is just a set of fundamental axioms and principles. It's, maths is just like logic. Maths is the relationship between one thing and another in our world. And what kids and I think adults really need to understand is why maths is true. Why does it, why does, um, why does it work the way it does? Because that opens up the creativity of maths and enables people to understand not just how to make a computer program do what you want it to, but how to write your own computer program. And that shift is happening in some schools. There's, um, there's a new way of teaching maths that is sometimes referred to as Singapore-style maths, where kids learn more about the underlying relationships in different ways. So for any given calculation, there might be five or six proofs of, that, of the answer to that calculation, and they learn the different uh, means by which you can prove that to be true. And to me, that's a big, profound shift that needs to happen. And it's not just about how we teach kids in school, but it's also scooping up those five million adults and saying, you may have failed at maths at school, but that's probably more likely because you were taught badly than because you are bad at maths. And if we can make that shift, I think we could have a profoundly more equal society. I think we probably need to um, leave this discussion here for now. I think once you're 40 minutes into a political podcast debate and someone goes, but what is maths? (laughs) (laughs) It's even better when we're in in the Commons Chamber and Alison starts (laughs) shouting at ministers saying, show me the maths, where are your workings out? (laughs) can we do one quick... They never can, by the way. They never can. Can we do one quick more vote? Uh, so if you agree with and, Alison... And, and my, my position was best exemplified by Jesse's question, actually. I think that's the <laughs> fundamental difference between us, actually. There's more consensus than, than, than we led you to believe. Yeah, I, know, I, I kind of was listening to the debate. and was like, I don't really understand what they disagree about. But um, <laughs> if, you, if you're more on Alison's side, could you lift a green card? Right. And yellow for Wes. Yeah, I think I think. Alice, oh, I've got some net gains. I've got some. I've got net gains there, and because I got net gains, although I didn't win the vote, I did win the election. <laughs> I find when I come to things like this and you chat to people, like last night, uh, everyone always starts kind of swapping stories about the stuff that's happened on the Labour doorstep and while you're out door knocking and canvassing people have so many stories about it that I kind of wanted to chat about that for five minutes. I went and uh, said to Wes this last night, I was like, I want to kind of ask any funny stories you've got from the doorstep. I think that'd be good. And he went, oh yeah, well, there was this one time and I knocked on the door and they opened it and he went, I can't tell that one. So, <laughs> so Wes, do you have any family-friendly doorstep stories? Yeah, I can't tell that one. Um, <laughs> but um, actually, there was one yesterday. I mean, where... if you have if you have knocked on a labour doorstep and you know and you've never seen a naked person open the door, were you ever really on a labour doorstep? <laughs> the worst thing is is that they're really pleased with themselves. Yeah. <laughs> they're like giving you this big grin as if like I'm having a much better time than you are right now. Um, it's it's worse when they go. I've been expecting you. <laughs> <laughs> I would run 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 a million miles. Um, uh, no, actually, one thing that is a sort of a bit of a recurring theme. So I, I do lots of school visits in my constituency, partly because actually I always wanted to be a teacher and I love going into um, classrooms and kind of talking to kids of all ages about politics, particularly primary school, because they ask really fundamental philosophical questions rather than what do you think about X issue. Um, but as a result, I have created something of a fan base amongst primary school aged children. So it's understandable, in, I think. We can... in, well, you know, um, they may be a bit more clever than me, but um, we do connect on level. Um, so yes, they're not on the door. And I just saw this kind of little face peer through the glass. And all of a sudden, I just heard this little voice say, it's Wes, and the door opened. Then, like, these worried parents came running down, saying, you're not allowed to open the door. But no, it's Wes. Um, and the parents were like, well, you've never met him before. Um, how, do you, how do you know my child? Um, 
but also, I mean, and I could not, if, you know, like, sometimes when you, you do visit, like, you get um, kind of visits from, like, the press during elections and stuff like that, you, you kind of try and plan every detail. So, you know, I mean, I mean who remembers when, um, I think, Gordon Brown had started the general election campaign and, and every Labour student in the country was ordered to King's Cross Station to pretend to be passers by to be like, oh, my God, we're so pleased to see you. Good luck, Gordon. We've heard about the general election. Um, but um, I had, I had a, a one that wasn't manufactured, an experience like that, where during the general election, um, an Evening Standard journalist came to spend some time. We went down this street in Clay Hall, which is um, a split ward in my constituency, two Tory councillors, uh, one Labour. We're hoping to change that in May. And um, it, literally every door in succession across three doors, a parent opened the door and said variations on the theme of, my kids keep on telling me to vote for you. Um, so that, that is how, you know, you don't need to buy um, Gavin Barwell's book, How to Win a Marginal Seat. You just need to do lots and lots of school visits and you have the best advocates that you could ever hope for. They are the future. Yeah. <laughs> Treat them well and let them lead the way. <laughs> Alison, let's not sing. <laughs> let's not sing. Uh, well, so I, I kind of do agree with Bez, actually. Like, um, it, kids can be the best advocates possible. And in fact, I got a text um, just yesterday from a friend of mine. Um, and she'd been walking past my office in New Ferry with her kid. And uh, her daughter, Ruby, had looked up at my office sign and turned to her mum and said... Mom, really? I thought her name was Alison McGovernment. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, really, Alison McOpposition. <laughs> but you, but you totally have a leadership election campaign right there in <laughs> McGovernment. No, no, no. Alison McGovernment. It's no, launched no, no. here. Launched here. No. Um, but um, actually, actually on, on names, I remember there was a, a, a guy who ran for council in Blackburn in the uh, early 90s, I think it was. His surname was King. Um, and he oh, never, this is a great story. I've heard he, this before. He'd never, <laughs> he'd never run for anything before. And uh, it came to polling day and they had one of those cars with the loudspeakers on top. And, you know, like she could go around with a microphone and remind people that it's polling day. Um, and before he got in, he, he turned to my mum and dad. He went, I'm a bit nervous about this. not done it before. He's like, what, what do you say? I usually say, you know, today's polling day, vote for Pope, Labour. He's like, cool, I'll do that, I'll do that. So he got in, and he starts off quite slowly. So today's polling day, vote for King, Labour. And as, and, as, and as he's going up the road, he's getting into it a bit more. It's today's polling day, vote for King, Labour. Today's polling day, vote for King, Labour. All these people running up the road, going, turn it off. Top that anecdote wise, I'm just saying. Shall we move on to the quiz then? Yeah, let, let's have the quiz. Let's so, have so you'll know that normally I do one, one question uh, that listeners can respond to and send in their question. But today we're going to do it live. And I thought we'd have teams. And the teams are going to be Ali and Wes versus all of you. Because we love each other, really. <laughs> and so what I'm going to do is I've got 10 questions. I'm going to put them to Alison and Wes. If they answer it correctly, great, they get a point. But if they get it wrong, it comes out to you. You just shout out any, you know, any, any answers that you like, and, and we'll try and work out. Are you good at quizzes, Wes? With my iPhone, because I'm not actually <laughs> anti-technology in quizzes. Uh, I'm, I'm terrible at quizzes and really can't stand them, so this is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I don't like games or fun. Get ready, people. You're going to be all right, so question one. Yeah. In which general election did Labour receive the highest percentage of the vote? Mm. Mm. Is this counterintuitive? Is the answer like 1983 or something? No. That's definitely not true. I, I, I'm going to give you a hint. I think it's got... really not 1983. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think it would be 1945 or 1997. No, Roger, shake his head, look. Oh, 19... 2001? 2005? 1974, 
And I can confirm that the correct answer is indeed 1951. As we knew. Yeah, we yeah. knew that. Thanks very much. Congratulations, Alison and Wes. That's yeah, one yeah, point. <laughs> With a little help from uh, Labour peer Roger Little in the audience there, who's <laughs> shaking his head and nodding when they finally got to the right answer. That is basically what the House of Lords is there for, by the way. <laughs> exactly. we, we don't quite get the answer right the first time they mark our homework. <laughs> Okay, so question two, which uh, long-time listeners of the podcast remember that I did a quiz around New Year, and this was actually one of the questions then, and uh, no one was able to answer it then. The answer's now changed. <laughs> that was a totally unnecessary preamble, but go on. <laughs> no, I, I'm just worried that like, we should know the answer, because the question's been on the podcast before, like, as if we all listened to all of that bit as well. <laughs> what is the name of the current UKIP leader? <laughs> Some fella. I don't know. Is it? Is it? It's not Henry Bolton still. No, he's no, gone. Because he refused to re resign at first, didn't he? Isn't it? Because they've got all got funny names, haven't they? Because there's like Mike Hookham. So is it kind of like I don't know? Like, are you going to make up a name? <laughs> well, if, got a better chance of getting okay, it right. Okay, we haven't. We haven't got a clue. But if anyone in the audience knows yeah, this, we're, I'll we're... buy you a pint. <laughs> Gerald, it, Gerald Batten was there the correct go. answer. Said that. He's uh, the Did you get that right, Liam? He's the current acting leader, having previously lost the 2009 UKIP leadership contest wow. to Lord Pearson. I'd just like to say that was a member of Ilford North CLP, Liam, Liam Martin Lane. Right. <laughs> Can we claim a moral victory then? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last year, Emmanuel Macron's party en marche changed their name. What to? Come um, on, guys. Oh, that's really embarrassing. Not to <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't, you've no, no idea. I think a few people uh, in the audience. Non, je ne comprends pas. La République en marche. Oh, wow. that's right. That's, that's kind that, of the same. It's got yeah, the Republic in it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in the 20th... It's like the Conservative and Unionist Party being the Conservative Party. It's not really different, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always whinge about my questions. I do. Well, that's because they're sort of like... In the 20th... 20... sort of annoying questions, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like, you know... You're going to hate, you're gonna hate <laughs> this one. In the 2012 oh, Russian God. presidential election, what percentage of the vote did Vladimir Putin receive? <laughs> 2012? 2012. 2012, so the last one. Um... 93%. So obviously, the thing that you've got to bear in mind about uh, you know, governments that may or may not be dictatorships is that you've got to make it look like a democracy. Uh -huh. So it's a kind of a trick question. Well, before we answer this question, we should also refer this to the international electoral authorities for their independent view before we <laughs> rush to judgment about what the answer is. <laughs> I think that's really important. Do you, do you want to guess? I'll give it within a year. Isn't it, you know, it, isn't it like something ridiculous, like 98%? Oh, Ali yeah. said 93. No, but I think Connor was giving us a clue. He was saying it was sort of like we had, it was like faux respectable. So like oh. mm, 72. Not far off. Anyone in the audience? We've got 67. That's pretty close. It's 64%. Wow, 64%. I, think, I think we'll, we'll give that to the audience there. There's Kieran got that one. Okay, uh, the wow, next... Wow, Russia is a democracy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when was the first general election with proper universal suffrage? True universal suffrage. So uh, everyone over the age of 21. 45? I mean, definitely not before the 30s. Patrick's nodding. Give us a clue, Patrick. 40, 45? No, for, um, 51? Um, um, <laughs> um, 1930? Um, I'm giving this to 19, the audience. 1920? Um, what? 29. 29. 29. No. Come on, Roger. 1929, <laughs> as we knew. Yeah. 1929. How did you know it, Alison? <laughs> um, I'm a student of history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which minister recently resigned in dramatic fashion, walking out of the House of Lords chamber, oh, arriving yeah. late to a debate? Oh, oh what's oh. his name? That was Michael Lord, something. Lord, what's his name? Um, <laughs> of somewhere. Oh, I'll give you half a point for Lord. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> One of the Lords. Um, um, there's a clue, Roger. Come on. <laughs> Lord Baines. Lord Baines. Fates. 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 Sorry, I've got. I've Even got, um, when you're cheating, I've, I've you can't the, get I've it got, right. 
I've got congestion, so my voice doesn't sound the same. Different baits. Sorry, I'm, baits. I'm, I'm baits. clocking that one up for the audience again. I'm sorry. Oh, come on, give us a break. Which former British Prime Minister? Are there any questions about football? <laughs> Oh, I can add one in. <laughs> Do you want a, a, an impromptu football question? No, not Who won really. the FA Cup in 1928? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Blackburn. It was Blackburn. Well done, Alison. You got a point for that. <laughs> Beat Huddersfield Town in the final. Yeah. Um, which former British Prime Minister? <laughs> may have contributed to the development of Mr. Whippy ice cream. Oh, Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Yeah. <laughs> no. Apparently it's disputed, but um, essentially what they did was uh, they added air, lowered quality and raised profits. So it's very Thatcherite yeah. ice cream, really, isn't it? <laughs> like the rest of the 1980s. Um, Gavin Williamson, who this week told Russia to shut up and go away, uh, famously owned a pet tarantula while he was chief whip. Oh, yes. What was its name? Cronus. Um, Cronus. Yes. Yes. And also, just on Gavin Williamson, does anyone else, you know, obviously, like, there's moral, you know, mass panic that, we, that Labour MPs are trying to start World War III. But does, doesn't <laughs> everyone think this is like the campest Cold War in history? You kind of got <laughs> Gavin Williams saying, you'll shut up and go away. And then you've got, you know, the Russians kind of going, oh, you old harpy. It's kind, of like, <laughs> it's kind of really low quality trash talk. It's like kind of, you know, the bits they cut out of RuPaul's Drag Race because they're not funny <laughs> enough. Um, so I kind of think we should, you know, we don't need to worry about the outbreak of war just yet. <laughs> just, just, you know, we should be a bit worried about the use of chemical weapons on the streets of England, that's all. Cheery. Um, <laughs> who succeeded Keir Hardy as leader of the Labour Party? Mm. 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 Right, I feel sure there's someone in the audience who's about to mouth the answer to me. <laughs> Uh, so, I, I feel really good about the fact that Roger Little doesn't appear to instantly know the answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Derry. Well, come on, Roger, Roger Little doesn't know the answer. But he's just not telling us now. <laughs> you might be wrong. Oh. You might oh. be wrong. Oh. oh. Go on, Rog. Ramsey McDonald. No. It wasn't Ramsey no. McDonald. No. Anyone else? Any other take? I'm Patrick Rose. No, I think Matthew Laza from Policy Network. Arthur Henderson was oh. the correct answer. <laughs> Smug Matthew Larza. It's, 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 kind of, it's kind of a trick question because obviously Arthur Henderson was leader about three times, I think. So yeah. I think people. So, final question. As in, was he in like a stand in? Is that why it's a trick question? Was no, he, he like he, the Harry Armour? He was just day? leader three times. Oh, right, okay. Um, so, we all know how politicians like to get down with the, the kids, uh, grind for Corbyn, May with her fist bump, but. Which politician was described as a sex god by reality TV star Georgia Toffolo? Oh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Rees yes. <laughs> <laughs> we might not know our leader of the Labour Party, but, yeah. you know, reality TV. <laughs> so I think at the end of that, we have to give a big round of applause to the audience. Yeah. Who won. Well done. No, we do have to leave it there, but uh, thank you for everyone for contributing. Thank you, Alison, and thank you, Wes, for being the guest on this week's show. This will be out on Tuesday morning, so don't forget to subscribe, don't forget to rate on iTunes, and don't forget to leave a review as well. Thank you very much, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And this episode was produced by Carolyn Crampton. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.